greetings from your brothers and sisters in Morocco. Brothers and sisters who have seen a few of your faces and who love those whom they have met, but through them love you and speak of you, Highland. Highland. We know that Highland is going to help, is with us. I cannot express adequately on behalf of the Église Évangélique au Maroc and the Comité d'Entraide Internationale how much it means to them that you are our partners, and you really are. It's not just one of those, you write checks. You are our partners. So thank you from the bottom of my heart. And I'll say more about that in just a few minutes. Please pray with me. May the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts, O oh God, be acceptable unto you, our rock and our risen redeemer. Amen. I love the story of Thomas. I think you're allowed, right, to have favorite Bible stories. Yes, of course, and, and least favorite Bible stories, too. And Thomas is definitely one of my favorites, one of my favorite characters. And one of the reasons is because, of course, his name is my name, the name I grew up with. I was Karen Thomas before I was Karen Thomas Smith, right? It means twin, you know, in Aramaic. And it's really interesting in the text there because he puts the Aramaic word and then right afterward it says, and, and that's Didymus, the Greek word for twin. So we know that it was not his given name, but a nickname. And you've got to wonder, well then, how did he get this nickname? I mean, all the believers knew him by that nickname in whatever language. Why did they call him twin? Tradition tells us that perhaps his name was actually Judas, the twin. And if his name was Judas, we can kind of understand why he wouldn't want to be known as Judas afterward. But even before the crucifixion and the resurrection, if you have Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, and this Judas, I mean, that's a fourth of the twelve around Jesus. And so getting his attention, if you wanted that one, would be sort of like showing up in Casablanca in the old Medina and saying, hey, Muhammad, you know, all the heads turn. So he's twin, but who's his twin? Did he have a twin brother or sister? We ask ourselves, that would be the logical explanation. But I want you to know that the second century tells us a little something different. I mean, this is a late tradition. Late second century says that his twin was none other than, drumroll, Jesus. I'm not being heretical. Well, maybe I am, but not in the way that you might think. It means not that they were biologically brothers, but that he was a dead ringer for the Lord. And I kind of like that. I have to tell you I like it because I think Thomas gets a bad rap. And to think that he, just by his presence, he might have evoked memories of Christ, might have evoked this love and longing, that, that comforts me. So, you know, 
this tradition that Thomas looked a lot like Jesus um, has been, I think, transformed over the generations, over the centuries, into the docetist tradition that somebody else got crucified in his place. Do you guys know that tradition, that it wasn't really Jesus who was crucified? The reason I know it so well is because that's the standard line in Islam, that Jesus wasn't crucified, that it was his double, his twin who was crucified instead. Interesting that. That's all side speculation. But putting speculation aside, we know about Thomas virtually exclusively through the Gospel of John. In the other Gospels, he's just a name in a list. But in the Gospel of John, which is a drama, he's an actor, an important actor. He shows up four times altogether, twice before you see him here, the first time in chapter 11, when Jesus has determined to return to Bethany in Judea despite the fact that he knows his life is in danger. Thomas is the one who voices what all the others are likely thinking but not saying when he turns to them and says, let us all go that we may die with him. And in chapter 14, at the Last Supper, when Jesus is deep in his discourse with his disciples prior to his death, how he is going away, but they know where he is going. It is Thomas who interrupts Jesus' theological ramblings to say, Lord, hello, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? To which Jesus gives the enigmatic response, I am the way the truth, and the life. And you can just feel Thomas chafing at this less than satisfying response. And now this, crass words to his fellow disciples. Unless I see the mark of, his, of the nails in his hands, put my finger there and my hand in his side, I won't believe. Hence the epithet, Doubting Thomas. But you know, Thomas doesn't really ask for anything more than the others have already been given. And it seems to me a natural reaction to want to experience for yourself what others have already experienced. I think a better word would be honest Thomas. A title fitting with his character is portrayed throughout John's gospel. Thomas wasn't able to pretend anything. He just couldn't. That's how I read that sentence. I won't, I won't be able to believe unless I see myself. He wasn't afraid to say what he felt, to speak the truth of his heart. And I suspect Jesus loved that about Thomas. Think for a minute about Thomas's absence from this place, this room where the other disciples were huddled. They had just seen what had happened to Jesus. And they were known to be his associates. They all had Galilean accents. It's like coming from Georgia and showing up in New York. You know, you can tell. He ain't from around here, this guy. They weren't just being paranoid to think 
that they might be in danger as well. But the same people that had gotten Jesus might come for them. Thomas, it seems though, is the only one who's not cringing behind closed doors. He had dared to go out. Maybe he went to check out the women's story for himself, like Peter and the beloved disciple had done earlier. Or maybe he just went out to get a read on what was happening out there after that politically charged festival and all that had happened. This one who was willing to challenge, to speak out, was also willing to go out into a world that could well be hostile and violent. I think he comes across pretty darn courageous, Thomas of Galilee. But the flip side of being courageous and mouthy is perhaps that one may be a bit difficult to get along with not always the easiest person in the world to have as a friend. Imagine how the others felt, just for a minute, when Thomas categorically refused to take their word for the resurrection. I expect they were frustrated, maybe a little exasperated with him. Not to mention how he felt, too. I mean, they're all happy and he's sad. It's hard to be together when that's the case. But still, they didn't excommunicate him from their fellowship. Do you notice that? Despite his difficultness, on the contrary, and this I think is the most remarkable line in the story, a week later, a whole week of we're happy and you're not, Thomas was right there with held on to him. And if this is true, I think we can attribute it to what Jesus himself had done on that first Sunday evening. He granted them his peace and his spirit. Upon entering the room, Jesus greeted his disciples with the ordinary blessing of peace. Shalom Aleichem. Salamu Aleikum. It's the ordinary greeting. It's the normal thing that everybody says when you show up. And yet, in this context, the first time they see him, this ordinary blessing took on extraordinary meaning. We usually think, you know, of salam alaykum, shalom aleichem. Let me get my languages straight. We usually think of deep inner peace, Right? But biblical peace is so much more than that. It is that, but it's more. It's always relational. And it's spoken in the plural. Not just deep peace be in each one of you individuals, but peace be with, among, between you all. These guys were racked with shame and fear. So I imagine there was a heck of a whole lot of blaming going on. Lots of blame to go around. Jesus' shalom is clearly a word of reconciliation, healing, and forgiveness. It makes sense then when Jesus breathes his own spirit of peace 
reconciliation, healing, forgiveness upon them, inviting them to live it, to breathe it. He gives them a challenge to be the community of his spirit, of this healing, of this forgiveness. He makes it clear in verse 23 that he is giving them this power to forgive and heal or to refuse to forgive and perpetuate the brokenness of sin. The community imbued with the Spirit of Christ is to become a community of faith, reconciliation, acceptance, healing, peace. We're less than perfect people, difficult people, challenging people, wounded people can be accepted, loved, held on to, and forgiven for their weakness and imperfection over and over again. Thomas was the test case of the community of the Spirit of Christ, and they passed the test. Imperfectly, but that was okay. I mean, they were still holed up in a locked room a week later, not exactly emboldened by faith to go proclaim Christ reconciling the world to God yet. But they did live that good news of God's shalom, God's reconciling, healing love to their brother Thomas. Thomas, who couldn't pretend to be anything other than he was, where he was in his struggle to be a disciple. They welcomed him in their midst, held on to him during his struggle, even as they themselves struggled differently in their own discipleship, and shared their faith with him until he came to have faith of his own. When Jesus does appear again to his disciples, Thomas now included, we note that he's not harsh with Thomas. His remarks do chafe a bit. Thomas is used to that. But he offers Thomas what he asked for, the chance to touch his hands and his side, to see that he was indeed the one who was crucified for whom resurrection had not erased the wounds and power, the wounds that the powers of darkness had inflicted upon him, but rather had given those wounds meaning. I recently read a book by Nadia Boltz Weber. It's amazing. Have you all read this book? She says that resurrected bodies are pretty banged up. You know. I think that was a big part of what Thomas needed. He wanted somebody to acknowledge the depth of the painfulness of it all. That was so important. He needed to see Christ's woundedness if he was to have hope for his own woundedness and hurt. And when Thomas saw that even the horrors of crucifixion had been redeemed by God in the risen Lord, he became the first person to confess Christ as my Lord and my God. Anathema to a monotheist. My Lord and my God. Faith like this had not yet been seen post-resurrection. And it grew from doubt, 
questioning, struggle, honesty, hurt, held together in the community of shared faith. As his brothers and sisters had shared their faith with him in his struggle, Thomas's own depth and power of conviction became a blessing for that first community of believers and for many others who would come to believe because of their testimony and their transformed lives. If we believe today, It is thanks to Thomas, Mary, Peter, Martha, James, Joanna, and so many others who followed them, all of whom, like their brother Thomas, found courage to own up to their own woundedness and grace to be Christ's own community of shared faith and daring healing, reconciling peace. I expect that many of you grew up being told how important it was to share your faith. I mean, we were encouraged to get out there and convert the lost to Christ, right? I mean, we grew up doing that. And many times what that pushed me to do was something I was uncomfortable with. Some of the formulas for evangelism, the if-you-die-tonight stuff, just didn't feel real or even right to foist on somebody like that. But I have come to understand sharing my faith differently now, as I expect many of you have. I have come to see that I need you to share your faith with me when I am struggling and hurting and can't figure out how to trust and how to go forward. And when you are the one who is hurting and struggling and losing your faith and hope, it is my job to share my faith with you, to hang on to you, to not let you go under, to not let Ultimately, brothers and sisters, you see, I really believe Thomas is our twin, all of ours, because we will all go through trials that make us doubt, though we might not use our heads doing it. It might be something more in our guts. All of us will go there. We will all need brothers and sisters to share their faith with us, to hold on to us until our faith and hope and courage are kindled anew. That is exactly what CEI, the Comité d'Entraide Internationale, your partner, that's what we your partnership with us is about. CEI means the Committee for International Entre-Aide, mutually helping each other. It's a wonderful word in French. CEI is about those of us who have a little faith and a few resources, sharing with those who have run out of both. 
This winter and spring have been particularly hard. It started with great anticipation in the fall of a new politics, la nouvelle politique on migration, on migrants, taken by the Moroccan government, a speech of the king. It was supposed to be kinder and gentler. Echoes somewhere. A jubilee year during which migrants could get papers to legally live in Morocco instead of being outside the law. But it became clear early on that only a tiny percentage of those in country would qualify for the papers. The requirement that you have to prove that you've been there for five years consecutively knocking out the vast majority immediately. It seemed that what was really new about the new politics of migration was where migrants were being rounded up, beaten, and dumped. Whereas in the past, Moroccan police would round up illegal aliens and sometimes legal aliens as well in the cities, transport them by night on buses to the frontier with Algeria near Oujda and deport them at gunpoint into the desert, now the modus operandi was to keep would-be African migrants to Europe away from the frontiers in Spain, in Morocco. Migrants sheltering in the forest near the Spanish enclaves of Ceuta and Melilla near Oujda now, would be forcibly and brutally rounded up and dumped in Rabat. Roy and I were just talking yesterday. We can't figure out how on earth this makes sense because Rabat is the capital. It's, it's where all the internationals are. This is being done right under everybody's noses now. I don't know why, but it started in November and it's not over. And by early February, our Protestant church in Morocco and our ministry and our policy, which was to have open doors for migrants and refugees on Tuesdays and Wednesdays, we had to close the doors. Too many people, angry men, in the courtyard, threatening violence to the volunteers and violence to the family that lived there. We changed how we operate. We asked our field agents to go into the neighborhoods where the majority of the folks live and identify the folks that we needed to help. That was hard because it means you don't get the new people. However, the Catholic Church kept their doors open and we decided we would actually go to the Catholic Church. They have more people, more security, and more resources. But at the end of March, even at the Catholic Church, They had to close their doors. In one week, 500 people showed up, dozens of them wounded, some critically, having to go to the hospital immediately. All these men in the courtyard needing assistance. Everybody's overwhelmed. The government pretends it's not even happening officially denies it. The Catholic Church closed its doors not because we want to stop helping people, because we're all still helping as we can, but because they decided and we supported them that it was time to force the government to own up to what was going on, to no longer be the Band-Aid for the wound 
oozing wound. It was a terribly hard decision. It's still a hard decision. And y'all know that I was here during this time and not in Morocco. I've been attending Skype meetings at 5 o'clock in the morning to be with the the national board because I serve on the board and, and thinking through these decisions. And I can also tell you that CEI is struggling internally. It's not easy to make any of these decisions and to figure out how to go forward without some of us getting feeling desperate in one direction and some of us feeling desperate in another. We need your prayers just to hang together. But this past, well, a week ago Tuesday, past, Tuesday of Holy Week, we called a press conference. Catholic Charities called it. But the lead spokesperson is a Moroccan Association for Migrants' Rights that stood with them and told the truth at the press conference about what was going on, which can be risky. I had called a journalist friend a week before and told her what was going on, and her story made the front page of the biggest Time magazine thing in Morocco, Telkel. So the story got out. And now we're waiting to see what will happen. We called at the press conference for an end to the violence against migrants and a real new politics, playing on the fact that the king has called for this. We're saying that these police need to do what the king has called for, right? And in the meantime, we're trying to minister to some especially in providing emergency food and housing, because in Mujda they can live in the forests, and in Rabat you can't. There's no place where you are let to stay. You're just herded and herded and herded. 25 bucks can house one man for one month and feed him for a week. And our goal is to be able to do this for 20 folks a month. That's only a few. But it is a few. It is some. The Catholic Charities doesn't provide food aid. We're the only ones doing food aid. Ramping up food aid for others as we can, as we have human resources to distribute. I I wish that I were able to come and tell you, here's our packaged solution to this problem, and we need you to support it. But I can't say that. We're here to show you our woundedness to trust our woundedness to you knowing that we can we need your partnership with us we need you to hold on to us as we all together figure out what needs to be done we need you and you have been there you have been holding on to us, believing with us, and sometimes believing for us that hope is not lost, that God is not dead, but God is alive and at work, even in this mess. I want you to know that we do not take your partnership for granted We do not want you to be God. Christ is doing that. We confess that together. We know that you also struggle over how to use your resources and energy and actions that make a difference. We don't expect 
you to work the miracles. But standing with us in our vulnerability and limitations, with your own vulnerability and limitations, we expect God to work God's own miracles among us. That's what we most need in this broken yet resurrected body of Christ that is the church, is it not? Maybe you and I haven't had the chance to see the crucified and risen Jesus of Nazareth bearing his wounds. But, you know, you might have. You might have had a dream or had a vision. I don't know. People do this in Morocco. But I believe we have nonetheless, indeed, truly, seen the Lord in the flesh because we have seen brothers and sisters who do indeed hold on to us. Brothers and sisters who are wounded themselves yet graced, forgiven, living, healing, who have loved us through our difficult times and through our difficultness. At the end of this text, Jesus says, We are blessed. We. Us, we who are twins of Thomas. Doubters and believers all at the same time. So let us rejoice indeed in this blessing. Our resurrection hope. And let the people of God say, Alleluia, Alhamdulillah, Amen.